Hey there, welcome to ATL on 29 at Peachtree Hoops podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis, and we are talking about the Hawks game five win. Uh, not too long after the game has ended, uh, whew, Glenn, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> where, where do you want to start on this one? It was just so unexpected. Uh, you know, I mean, a little behind the scenes on my side, I'm uh, on an f- extended family vacation with my wife's family. Uh, part of that is nieces eight and four, who I promised the game uh, Candy Land 2 when the Hawks game was over. And uh, uh, oh. so I had to divert my attention. I didn't really get to digest what I saw so much because I, you know, I had a wonderful commitment with them. But I mean, it's just. Um, it's just amazing how dominant the Sixers can look, especially when, yeah, I don't know what, what the right words are, when Embiid is feeling good, when he has energy before he fatigues, you know, before maybe something happens on a fall to the ground and he starts feeling that knee a little. Yeah, who really knows what which of those things apply? Uh, and then, But when they're not able to ride his face-up game and all the things that they kind of run out of that uh, kind of point of initiation – they really are susceptible to kind of running out of offensive juice. I mean, that's what we saw tonight. I mean, it wasn't just the Sixers' offense. Um, in fact, I think their defense was the bigger issue. Um, but, you know, all they really had to do was continue putting up some modest scoring, you know, after they were leading it by 26 with like eight and a half to go somewhere right around there. You know, it just kind of seems like if you just keep running your stuff that you're probably going to get enough points that you're going to get the win. But, you know, the Hawks found a way to kind of push back, get the foot in the door. And, uh, and from there, it was uh, still an amazing ride all the way all the way to the very end. But just a lot of uh, stick to it, sticking to it for the Hawks, a lot of resilience for the Hawks. And, you know, I, I've wondered uh, before in this series, now I wonder again if the Sixers kind of, don't fully respect the Hawks, you know, um, and early in the third quarter, you know, foot out the gas or whatever it is. So I know I hate you a lot of stuff, but man, it was, a, it was a swing. Like it felt like the Sixers feeling like we've got this. And if you have, they have game five, then they have the series and the Hawks just kind of hanging right there. It wasn't like it went from 22 to 10, just like that. They had to fight just to keep it at 20 and 22 to not let the league get up to 30 for a good long stretch of time. And then as the Sixers second unit came on the floor towards the end of the third quarter, that's when it became a super slippery slope for the Sixers. So I don't know where you want to start, but it's just, it's too crazy to try to kind of summarize that, I think. Yeah. I mean, the Sixers are such a weird team that it, it makes it uh, just a crazy chess match. Like, you know, the Hawks are – they don't have Hunter. So, you know, they went to big ball early in this game. They You've got Collins and, and Capella and Gallinari. They they started that early. But really the biggest issue was just that Trey was being guarded by Ben Simmons and they weren't getting anything from Bogdanovich or Herter. Bogdanovich and Herter, for some reason, were being used to do the Hacka of Simmons thing. So that was like another weird sidebar. And then, you know, it, it just felt like they needed to attack somewhere that wasn't Ben Simmons. It felt like Ben Simmons and Embiid 
just with what they could do defensively, they were sort of controlling the game because so much of what the Hawks do is, is predicated on Trey coming clean on pick and rolls and then just making the right read. But even the right read wasn't a great read because the Sixers were so good defensively. It was like the best option Trey had was sort of to swing the ball to the weak side, three-point line, kind of off behind him. And even if he did that, there was just such a flurry of arms and defenders who were lurking that even that pass, if he did, you know, one little thing wrong was going to be a dangerous pass and practically an outlet pass uh, for the Sixers, you know, and, and of course, Nate, you know, was consistently preaching, you know, be careful with the ball, be careful with the ball, don't turn it over, we can't let the Sixers run. And it's just, it just felt like the offense had to be just a lot of a lot of one-on-one kind of shot stuff just because they couldn't get the pick and roll looks going. Yeah. And then I worked back through some of the second half possession by possession, um, you know, once the, once the nieces went to bed, but um, you know, Trey was comfortable. Um, he, he, I saw a few times where, you know, well, he'll kind of skip on his way after he uses the ball screen and starts moving towards the paint, you'll see a little skip to buy time, yep, you yep, know? Yep. And he's, I saw that several times. And I don't think I've seen that since maybe game early in game three, right. um, where he was feeling that comfortable with the ball. And, and, you know, I roll it back and look like, why is he feeling this comfortable? And, you know, they got and be pretty far out of the paint on, on the possession. I was rewatching, you know, three or four times. Capella dives straight to the rim with no resistance. Harris comes off JC in the weak side corner all the way to Capella at the rim. And Trey has like an easy pass to the weak side corner. And that's just not been what Trey's been seeing this whole series. So, you know, that's just to me an example of the, you know, the using be a coach speak, the Sixers kind of letting go of the rope. You know, coaches don't usually talk about that from a, you know, being up by 20 or something standpoint, it's more of an adversity kind of scenario where they're using that language, but they just stopped kind of paying attention to the details. They stopped playing on the balls of their feet, maybe. And right. they were just got a little bit slow and a little bit lackadaisical and, um, and trade tore it up as soon as they kind of backed off just a little bit. And, you know, these are human beings, and once you kind of lose something you have control of, it's kind of a psychological challenge to kind of get yourself kind of amped back up to go reclaim something right. you should have possessed, you know, all along. So, you know, the offense got easier and easier and easier as the second half progressed for the Hawks. And on the other side, for Philadelphia, it got harder and harder and harder. I think I, I went back and looked at it, the non shooters for the Sixers in the second half for three for 20. And that's with Trey and Lou out there. <laughs> right. And, and that well, Seth and Seth was going at Lou and Lou was going at Seth for a good right. long stretch in the right. fourth quarter. Right. Yeah. They're running that stack set up where they get to the slot pick and roll and they're going at each other and all that sort of stuff. But nobody except Seth was making shots um, in the second half. The Sixers bench was 0 for 4. I think the Hawks bench was 13 for 17. You know, Gallo and Lou just did so much heavy lifting. And then also, you know, I'll throw a lot of stats at you, but in the second half, Tybal and Simmons, so those are the two primary trade defenders, right, played 30 minutes in the second half and combined to take one shot. And I have to think that when you're you're doing that, you're rolling that kind of 
I don't even want to call Tyball a non-shooter at this point because he's made himself. He did it right in the first half. Yeah, he he did. He he was he was putting them up and he was making them. But honestly, just just the act of putting them up was useful, and he was making them too. It it was, but it it looked like guys like him, guys like Simmons, you know, just became even Corkmaz, who had a pretty good overall game, but. As the game kind of went on, he had a couple turnovers, and he looked like he lost all confidence. But, you know, Tybal and Simmons played 30 minutes in the second half, and they took one shot combined. And, I mean, that is just crazy, and it seems non-viable. I mean, how much pressure, how much more pressure does that shift to Embiid to have to continue, you know, doing work? He put up, what, 27 points in the first half? And we'll probably get into you know, a little later about kind of what we're seeing in beat, but as he is, as a big man like him, is probably naturally fatiguing, shifting more offensive workload to him probably doesn't make sense. And that's what I saw tonight. I mean, Seth was doing his thing, you know, but Seth's a small guard. You can't, you know, have him run, you know, you know every single possession as the, the primary guy. Right. Um, he was attacking the mismatch you know, that was there with Lou. But I just feel like, you know, Embiid's teammates in a way let him down by, um, you know, just kind of losing their confidence to shooters. Shooters, Simmons, you know, several times drove toward the rim, and if he didn't have a dunk, he'd just pass the ball, even though he had a pretty, you know, good kind of one-on-one situation. So, I, you know, Embiid absolutely drilled the Hawks in the first half. They rode Seth in the second half. He did great. I think he was 9 for 12 in the second half. Um, and, but then once Embiid ran out of gas, Seth gave them everything they could. They just couldn't get any offensive juice from anywhere else. And, you know, part of that story is the Hawks kept fighting on defense. You know, they kept working, you know, they didn't get disappointed and frustrated, uh, so much that if, in fact, to their play when they lost, you know, playing time to Bogdanovich because of foul trouble. And then I think the Herder had some, I think some foul trouble as well. And, um, and Capella certainly had moments of frustration you know, early in the game. Um, and, it, I, you know, I'm just so impressed with how they stuck together. And even just the um, fortitude, keep fighting and keeping it a 20-ish point game for a good five, six minutes and not letting it get to 30. Um, you know, it felt like the game wasn't really viable then, but they just kept fighting and keeping it just in reach that maybe they could kind of get back into it. So it was one of the most um, just unexpected kind of you know, game flows I've seen in a, in, a, in, a, in a playoff game, especially with the one seed at home. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I didn't really know that this, <laughs> this uh, sideline was coming tonight, but they took it up during the broadcast and I guess it seemed pretty uh, apropos given what Embiid did in the first half. But uh, I guess he took note of what Capella said after last game that uh, he gets, he gets fatigued and that the fatigue made a difference. Uh, And he certainly didn't look fatigued in the first half in any way, shape or form. Um, But, you know, if there's any fatigue there, it's not really Embiid's fault. It's that, you know, he just has to do too much. Like, he just has to do too much of the heavy lifting on offense uh, for them to have a viable offense. Like, if, if you know, even when even when Seth Curry is cooking as well as he was, you've got to get some points from somewhere. And it, you know, it just, 
he got tired. He did get tired in the fourth. Um, he, did, he did, for sure. And part of that was the Hawks going at him time after time after time. And that fatigue Seth as well, you know. Yeah. The Hawks had Trey and Lou both capable down the stretch, and the Sixers really had as a guard – Seth, I, you know, I, 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 I'm going to have to go back and watch, like, what happens with Tobias Harris in this game. You know, I, I, he just disappeared, you know. Right. Um, and, you know, I haven't been able to kind of go back and kind of connect the dots on what that was all about. But, um, you know, it's, it kind of just goes to, to further emphasize in the postseason how much ball handling uh, has important shot creation has importance because you know there's a lot of things that Ben Simmons done does that really helps his team but when he dribbles to the paint and he has a like a small forward in between him and the rim um and he decides just to kind of reset the play instead of taking his 610 self in there whether it's because he's afraid to you know miss or get fouled and shoot free throws or whatever but you know there it feels like Philly um is being um, kind of exposed for just not having enough ball handling, not having enough creation. Um, and it, like I said, I think one thing I'm learning about the Sixers in this series is that the plan looks awesome typically in the first half, game four aside, where it seemed like Embiid wasn't feeling good from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then at, if you can just kind of stay in it with them, um, that they start to have their you know key offensive uh, initiators fatigue, and the Hawks look like either they knew that 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 opportunity would come at the end, or that they were just determined to give them whatever opportunity they could kind of fight for there at the end. But it's it's going to be fascinating to see how how Doc might try to change that dynamic heading into Game Six. Yeah. Uh... I wonder if, you know, one of the things I think I've, I've heard advocated by some of the Sixers fans is, is some Ben Simmons at center off the bench because, you know, that might be a way to get him more involved and better in the flow of the game if he's not in the flow of the game because uh, Dwight Howard got cooked tonight. Uh, oh, totally. A, a Kong a was really good. And especially really good. at the beginning of the fourth quarter, like Lou, once Lou is feeling good, Lou's like, okay, I'm feeling good. Uh, we, we've got a good thing between us. So I'm going to make you feel good. And, and they had a nice uh, two man game going. And, and, you know, once, once a Kong got a little bit of roll action, he just did a lot rebounding defense uh, that that first four minutes or so before he got pulled in the fourth quarter uh, was was essential. Yeah, yeah, his activity was really good, and um, you know he just had critical when the Hawks were trying to claw and stay in it. He'd get a timely offensive rebound or a tip pass or you know or a defensive rebound to end the possession, and um, it just you know it's so impressive. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that he's a one and done center that was you know pretty raw, you know, yeah. as a draft pick, didn't get to play any summer league, almost no preseason. In fact, I think there was no preseason he was, for him because he, he was hurt. Yeah. He, yeah, he, he was the first, what, three, four games of the season, if I recall correctly. Uh, and here he is, you know, 
with a team now knocking on the door of conference finals that he's, you know, not only going in and not killing them, but he really helped them Yeah, he did. Uh, in this game. And he seems to be getting a little better, you know, every, every time out. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of wild, but I, you know, this game, I just think about, you know, the Hawks having a guy who will shoot and create like Gallo having, a guy like Lou who fits that definition as well. And then you know, obviously you have Trey and Bogdanovich was kind of a non-talker tonight, but he could do that too. And you look on the other side, it's like, well, you know, what are you doing when um, George Hill at this point in his career is on the court? You know, um, he's not going to be able to kind of give you all that. He's a helpful player in a lot of different ways, but he's not that. You know, what are you doing when – um, Maxie's on the court, or even Corkmaz, when you is an awesome shooter, but when you make him dribble it, he's not a secure ball, he's not a, an advanced ball handler. No, and he had like one critical turnover tonight that turned it into a tray kind of run out layup. Um, and so there's it's just it just kind of goes to show that, um, you know, in a way, the, the team construct that works for the regular season, which is a lot of long wings, a lot of good defense, you know, play good defense every single game have an offensive template that works for you when you get in the postseason, you know, in the game, the game planning kind of really intensifies, you know, it goes to a factor of what, you know, three, four, five times as much, you know, planning on in a game that those guys with those weaknesses, you know, really, really uh, get exposed. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing coming into the season that I didn't really know what to expect of this team. And now the Hawks two series in a row easily have, more ball handling the other team easily have more shot creation um, yeah. than the than the other team. No, Philly is dominant in other areas that are important. So I don't want to sound like oh the Hawks are the better team. You know, Philly has been an awesome team this year. Um, but you know, I mean, what what are you going to get from Shake Milton in eight minutes? You know, what are you going to get from George Hill? You know, uh, apart from him standing in the corner, it's it's just. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. And the only thing I can kind of think of on for Doc is does he go back and adjust Embiid's minutes to instead of him playing like 10, 11 minutes in the first and third quarter, you know, play sick, you know, does he kind of do what player was, I guess LeBron was kind of breaking himself up into three shifts this year, right? Each half where he played about five and sit I down. Think- Al Horford used to do that for the Hawks. Right. Yeah. Not too far back. Yeah. So, you know, I I wonder if there's something Doc is going to do. It's, I mean, I I think as a coach, you feel concerned maybe that if you go away from something you've been doing all year, that you're going to kind of potentially disrupt the rhythm, you know, but I mean, it's become the pattern in the series, especially where the Hawks have won for, you know, and be to, to see me around the gas, you know, so and he, and that's not me being critical. He is a massive, massive dude <laughs> and he is yeah. awesome. And he's playing hard. He's playing really hard on both ends. Uh, and we're playing with a lot of impact. And yeah. I mean, I mean, one, th- one of the things is like, you know, how much credit do you give Capella for how bad he looked for so long in this game and the fact that he just kept going out there his coach never pulled him, you know, because of just because of optics. And he just kept trying to do his job. And I posted before we started uh, recording here, I posted, I don't know if you recall that um, turnover that Capella forced in the third corner with a beat kind of at the free throw line that resulted in the, in the McDonough layup in transition. I don't know if you remember that play. No. But <laughs> Embiid, Embiid caught the ball from the 
right wing, and he turned to attack right at the nail, which where he loves to operate right there, and Capella was in front of him, and Embiid went to dribble with his left hand to kind of move towards his left, and Capella got a fingertip on it and poked it over to Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich got the run out score, and I was curious about, you know, I was thinking back early in the game, like Embiid got a tech for, you know, talking trash, you know, with Capella, and just all of the, you know, kind of gamesmanship that was going on around that. But after that steal that Capella created and that created a Bogdanovich run out, for that point on, Embiid was minus 10 and Capella was plus 18 the rest of the game. From that point on, Embiid was two for eight from the floor, over two from three, six for eight from the three uh, free throw line. Um, I think that's 10 points. Um, and, it, and Capella was just steady. The rest, the, the entire, you know, rest, rest of the way, and it's it's amazing how sometimes you go back and look at a single play where it swung the morale, you know, between two players who've been battling each other this whole series, and and I have to say it's harder for a guy like Capella to keep battling because he has it has been a rough look for him for a, a you know a good stretch of the series, but he just to his credit he keeps going back out there and just trying to do the best he can. Yeah, he's he's having – I mean, I guess it was a sort of an all-season thing that he didn't look great uh, converting on simple, you know, simple attempts near the rim, but uh, it's gotten worse. I'm sure part of that is Embiid, but part of it is, you know, there are there are plays when Embiid isn't really even there that he's he's uh, chunking some, some short-range shots pretty badly. Yeah, his – it's like he knows that all of his normal angles are gone. Yeah, and it's like he's playing like the angle's not there, even when Embiid's not there, right? It, it, it's 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 weird how that works. Yeah, looks like he's you know rushing a little bit, which to be fair, I think he rushes a lot. You know, I think he rushed a lot of shots in the regular season against some players that he didn't really need to rush him, but he yeah. definitely appears uh, to be in a little bit of a hurry uh, in this series. Yeah, what do you, what do you make of Trey's work tonight? I mean, it was – it felt weird. It's like, oh, you know, he had his career playoff high, and it's like, wait, really? I, and and I don't mean that in, like, a disparaging way, but it it felt like he got it, like, completely in the flow of the game. Like, totally. it, never, it never felt like, oh, God, Trey's trying to take over. Like, he was just trying to make plays. And, and you know, I think it was a credit to Philadelphia that uh, there were situations where he probably wanted to pass but just really couldn't. Um, so he started looking for other things that he could do. Uh, you know, I think he relied a little bit on his deep ball. Uh, I wouldn't say out of frustration, but just knowing that uh, when he got deep in the paint, it was, wasn't going that great in the first half. Uh, I, I think he got a little bit hesitant to, to get down there because the, you know, the Sixers were doing a good job taking away his angles. And so for, for him, I don't know. It just, it, you know, it's kind of amazing that on a night where, you know, the other team seemed to frustrate him. He had as much success as he had, like his, his jump shot looked good. I think it, that's probably been better than it, it, than it maybe it's been in a minute, but just really, really patient, uh, you know, because he, he didn't do it against a bad defense. You know, he was, he was going against Simmons. He didn't really get any breaks. Uh, I think they allowed him uh, to try to hunt some matchups a little bit in the second half. They tried to have like loose screen for him, couple of times just to kind of see if they could you know 
shake the matchup in the way that they wanted. But, uh, you know, he, he was, he was the focal point of, of, uh, you know, some all, <laughs> all defense players. Uh, and, you know, he, he didn't get shaken by that. He was just, I don't know, uh, you know, patient and, you know, never, never flustered in a way that, that it carried anything into the next play. Like he might've been flustered on the play, but it, it never really uh, changed how he approached the game all that much. He, you know, he was just looking for the best option in a very cool, rational sense. It looked like from here. Yeah. I mean, when I saw his stats at the game, I was surprised too. It didn't feel like it was that big of a performance, but to, to you know, What's noteworthy to me about this, is, well, I'm kind of piggybacking on what you said there, is his growth here. We can remember a few games in the regular season where he just was not able to get to the paint, not able to kind of get to his spots. Remember the Charlotte game where they played running his zone the whole game and he couldn't really kind of make anything work. He got frustrated. Um, and I would never say quit on the game, but he kind of decided that someone else maybe needed to kind of attack because the zone was – completely designed to kind of take his penetration game away from him. Right. Um, and then even in game two, when he had to deal with Simmons really for the first time as his primary defender, you know, he, I think he was mostly patient, but he, um, he looked a little bit resigned to the fact that it, it just wasn't going to happen for him in that game. We're here tonight. It was really, it was tough for him to kind of get to his spots apart from a couple of exceptions early on. But what's really impressive is that, Late in the you know game, the second half, once that Philadelphia defense started to loosen up, he saw those lanes and those angles and those creases immediately. As soon as they were available, he pounced, and he got you know several layups you know out of them and, and several opportunities to kind of collapse the defense. And so for him to play, you know what, his first whatever twenty five minutes on the floor, and really not get you know anything kind of you know, on the interior except a couple of runners. Uh, and then to still be mentally prepared to pay attention to when that uh, Philly defense softened up and for him to immediately attack, that had a huge difference, you know, uh, in, in this game. And it's, just, you know, for a guy that's as young as he is, um, first time in the in the po- postseason, it's, it's, it's staggering to me the maturity that he's demonstrating, you know, every – it feels like every game I'm seeing a different kind of kind of maturity or different example of maturity around him. And it's, it's just, it's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, do you have any, there were like eight different uh, cataclysmic pieces of news in the NBA <laughs> today. Uh, yeah. Do you do you want to tackle any of them? Yeah. I'm all, I always have thoughts. So we can do pick, kind pick of your a, favorite. I don't. We probably can't even do all of them. I, I don't know that I have that sort of standard. Well, I mean, I, what I, do you, favorite. I don't know. Most interesting is Dallas, but it's a little hard to talk about because I, I think you almost have to speculate. You know, kind of what's really going on there, um, and I don't know that we know all of the actions there. You know, um, like I, I don't know if I, I think that his name is Bob Garris is still in or I don't I don't know the answer to that. Right. Donnie is out. You know, yeah. what is really going on with Luca? What is really going on? There's there's noise that maybe some of the players don't enjoy playing with Luca. 
you and I both know that that could be true, not true, partially true. And, and it could people. be true and not be his fault. Like they could be telling him to play a certain style of offense. Right. And it, and, it, and it could be one player on the team trying to get a narrative out by way of some friendly. <laughs> I mean, there's right. just so much needy a, a narrative kind of creation and, and, and it's just, it's part of the business, you know, but that's the most interesting to me is, is like, uh, I wonder like, is Cuban going to, uh, make a run at Masai, you know, to try to steal him away from Toronto. Does Cuban have a kind of a big move kind of plan? I, I was thinking today, like, you know, I wonder if he makes a run at like Bob Myers. You know, I can't, I can't imagine Bob Myers, but I know if I'm not living in Southern California, <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't, it's just like Cuban seems like a, a guy that wouldn't do this if he did kind of have a pretty big plan. And then with Luca being where he is this early in his career, and thinking about, you know, at this point, how much collateral does he have in the organization around, you know, who the next front office, you know, leader is and all that. that that's that's the most interesting to me. Do you, do you have thoughts on that one or, or are you just kind of uh, continuing to follow and see where that lands? Um, you know, I, I do think that, that their offense is sort of a little too predictable. And, and focused, you know, on, on one sort of style. But, I mean, the big question to me is, you know, look at somebody like Rick Carlisle. That, he was a Donnie Nelson guy. So if Donnie Nelson is out, uh, I just wonder if maybe he likes it. Maybe he thinks it's great. But I don't know. Like, he saw his former teammate Danny Ainge retire not too long ago. Uh, he might be looking at this like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe I've been doing this too long. Uh, <laughs> well, don't forget enough. that. Yeah, you know, and part of the, was, yeah. Go ahead. You no, know, uh, if this is kind of coming apart in Dallas, uh, then in the Indiana Pacers are looking for a coach, and Rick Carlisle was attached to that organization for a pretty long time, right? In his coaching days. So, I mean, I have a little bit of a eye on whether Carlisle could kind of, in a sense, go back home uh, and be in a spot where there's you know, not so much pressure or where everything's not built around one player. And um, if that's something that he wants, you know, we'll right. see. But that, that the Indiana job being open makes me that much more curious about Carlisle. Um, I think, you know, Scott Brooks was not a surprise. I don't think that's very interesting. Stan, Stan getting cut loose was kind of a surprise, except that everything seemed like a mess down there in New Orleans this year. Yeah, it seemed like everybody hated everything. <laughs> it's New Orleans. How can you not be at least a little bit happy? That's true. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and and so it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, the, when I look at the New Orleans situation, Kevin, what I see is, you know, Griff went through a lot of coaches in his time in Cleveland, and everyone chalked that up to kind of LeBron. You know, the, it's hard to pair a coach with LeBron. Right. And now one year in uh, New Orleans and. Stan Van Gundy, who is, you know, one of the, I think because the last, even still the last several times he's been available in the market, has been one of the, the top gets, you know, and to have him kind of go out after one, one year, I thought the roster was a terrible fit for Stan, but it's going to be interesting to see. I, I guess, I guess, uh, is it um, the assistant coach that's been there for a while, Fred Vincent, is there's a rumor he's going to maybe kind of get elevated to that position. Maybe there's some trust between the, um, ownership and, and him as an, an assistant, but it, it's you know he's you know what one year behind Zion, you know I'm sorry Zion is one year behind Luca and, and Trey, right? Um, and 
you know, you don't have much time to stabilize the organization and build that, you know, optimized infrastructure around a player like that before I, you start to worry about that player feeling like he's going to have to seek a change, you know, and that's just massive, especially for an organization that's been, you know, I think the smallest market uh, in the league, or if not the smallest, you know, bottom three or four for a while, that's, that's kind of a tough situation. Um, but yeah, Dallas and New Orleans are the ones that um, I kind of have my eye on. And now I feel like I'm probably missing, you know, one or two things that happened today that I, Kawhi. Yeah, sure. Like that's huge. <laughs> I was I was busy today with family. Do we hear anything more around the MRI results, or is it more like you know day to day updates and things like that that we're expecting? Uh, now, now I feel like it, it was like twenty hours ago. Now I feel like I've got to double check. Yeah, yeah they, and, then Chris, and then Chris Paul, you know, the yeah, Paul. Phoenix has to be hoping that this Utah. Uh, Clipper series goes seven games to bake in as much time for him as uh, as possible, I would think. Yeah, so I guess officially the Kawhi is, you know, they, they said it was an ACL injury, or at least mm-hmm. there was a report that it was an ACL injury, yeah. and the team officially said there's no timetable for his return. Uh, so that sounds bad. That sounds bad. Yeah, and then Harden coming off the injury report altogether is super strange. Yeah, I mean, I guess he played, and he played a lot. And, you know, I guess they're probably just committed to – this is probably overstating it, but, you know, just kind of using him as a decoy. You know, there's a certain value to just having him out there. A spot-up shooter, even a a great – you know, sort of a a guy who can catch the ball and see every pass on the floor, even if he's not dribbling into those passes, that has value. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully for them, set up you know Joe Harris and guys like Landry Shamet who can you know work off you know flare screens and different things like that and and Harden can find them without having to be on the move. Yeah, so you know I think about once a week when we record we try to kind of check in on how we see the the favorites. Um, you know I've been touting the Sixers if if they got by the Hawks as being a team that I think matches up well with both Milwaukee and, and um, Brooklyn, but with all of this Kawhi news and all that sort of stuff, are, are the Suns kind of emerging as a team that looks like they have the clearest path, or do you still like what the Clippers can do even if they lose Kawhi? How, how are you seeing the field at this moment any differently in light of all the, all of the news today? Well, I've kind of been – I think the last time we said it, I was I was sort of Suns net. So, uh, not that I'm rooting for that, but I think all the news kind of went in their favor. Sure. Uh, the Sixers lost. Uh, Chris Paul uh, is in the COVID protocol. Kawhi with the knee. So it just seems like all of that has become a little bit more likely. So I have I have no reason to change my gut feeling. In fact, I yeah. I want to I want to give myself a pat on the back because I think I've said for the last three months that. Uh, Dallas was going to miss Seth Curry and Philly was going to be a different team with him. And uh, I mean, maybe Philly doesn't advance a whole lot more, but can you imagine where they would be without him at this point? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it, and it's, it's amazing to me, like how much of the gold, the golden state stuff they run 
with Seth lifting like clay. It's not Seth, and I know that it'd be easy and cuter to say Seth in the Steph role, but it's really Seth in the clay role. You know, kind of beating the post, functioning as a scorer and a shooter in a way that Draymond doesn't. But they run all that similar lift action and elevator action and you know draw screen action and you know and he's running all that clay and he's doing it exceptionally well. Um, but like tonight. It wasn't enough, but what a what a I mean, what a fun. It's post-season. funny that you mentioned the actions though, because it feels you know, especially the last two games. I think some of the actions have been just perfect and beautiful, and those have been the shots that he misses. Right, and there'll be another play where it's just like the ball hits somebody's knee, bounces off somebody's shoulder. Oh, Seth Curry has it, and he hits it like. I feel like his offense, you know, as far as make or miss, his offense has been more random the last couple of games. Yeah, that's true. And I, were you as nervous as I was in the game four? Oh, when, yeah. 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 I mean, Shake had a really good look, but, you know, I think as a coach, I want Shake to take that. But you don't mind Seth getting that look, even though he was, what, eight feet behind the three-point line. But, you know. He's one of the very, very best shooters in the league. So, I, I mean, it, the rest of the way, I think, I think the like Vegas and five thirty eight are already swinging the odds back towards Atlanta. Um, I don't know really what to expect in Game Six, um, except for Philly to come out and fight like mad, yeah. um, and to have things maybe get even a little bit more physical. Uh, it was funny tonight, Kevin, that Seth was getting away with a ton of grabbing and. Holding and it, yeah, I don't know I saw why you tweeting that. That for me, that's just like I don't know. That's like one of the things that I hate most about the NBA. That just seems like the NBA's tale. That's like as old as time. It's like what happens on the ball. The refs are watching. You better be careful. And then you know if you're Kyle Korver trying to get open on the weak side, like good luck to you. But a lot of his grabbing wasn't the ball when Lou and Trey were attacking him in that slot, you know, oh. pick and roll. And so that's what and, – and it's not like I I am upset those don't get called. It's just that, like, at about the same time, Bogdanovich had a really, you know, nitpicky foul yeah. to get his fifth, you know, which was off the ball, you know. And it was – so that was kind of the stuff that kind of drove me crazy. But, you know, it's <sighs> – Officiating is hard, super, super hard. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and, and it's there's not much value in turning the whole kind of, uh, you know, postmortem into officiating analysis. But, man, Hawks are one win away from getting to conference finals and you know, trade, trade year three, and it's a crazy year. Certainly a lot of kind of var- more variables, by, I think a lot more variables than you normally see in a regular postseason. But – all you can do is win in advance. That's all you can do. Yeah, I mean, good golly, Nate McMillan. I don't know what he does. He just his agent must be happy. <laughs> yeah, his agent must be very happy. Do you remember what Ty Lue did that championship season in Cleveland? No, refused to sign a contract. The organization wanted him to sign a contract after they removed Blatt, and he refused to sign a contract, and he got a massive contract after the championship. I don't think this is a parallel, but Nate's situation, for some reason, makes me think about how T. Lou did that. Because it's sort of a bet on yourself. It's not, I, right. I have no reason to think Nate's been offered a contract or anything like that. You know, right. I don't think there's that parallel, but it's just kind of funny how 
Nate's leverage, I guess you would say, is increasing. And that's the parallel I see with the, the Ty Lee situation in Cleveland. Um, now, the, the post-championship tenure for Ty Lee in Cleveland wasn't awesome. So let's hope that that's not the uh, parallel <laughs> for when we get there. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to hit on? I don't think so. That was a crazy basketball game. I, I feel like I didn't do it justice, but I don't know how to. Yeah, really I mean, talk. we're kind of doing quick reaction instead of more yeah. deliberate. So I haven't yeah. really, I haven't really looked at any of it again or thought about it. Just kind of flying by the seat of our pants here, trying to recall everything off the top of the cuff. Uh, 40, 40 and nineteen in the fourth quarter. That's on the road. That's just crazy. Well, yeah, and it's just it's you know it's just a complete 180 from, from what they were doing at the beginning of the season. Like it's just, they, they, the shoe was on the other foot. They were the team that was, could not close out. So. Yeah. Early in the season, it looked like Trey didn't really trust the guys around him. They were all new to him. Yeah. And, and then the guys were in that lineup with injuries. And now it's like, he gives the ball up when he needs to, the ball finds its way back to him sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. And he's trusting that stuff with everything around him. And that's I think that's making a massive difference. He's not forcing risky passes. He's not turning the ball over, trying to make a you know highlight play. He's not putting it all on himself. And I think that um, that's really the primary change that I see that uh, is making a difference. So, you know, I, it's a fun season. I'm all for uh, the fun season continuing. But we'll, we'll have to kind of see what happens on Friday. Very good. Well, uh, I appreciate you uh, jumping in to do this, and uh, <laughs> I guess I guess we'll have at least a couple more games to 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 keep talking. At least, yes. Uh, look forward to it. All right, have a good one. You too. Thanks, Kevin.